Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and Enchantment. And this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season, we ask a range of wise people a common question and roam around in the breadth and depth of our knowing. How We Live Now is made possible by my brilliant community at Substack. For newsletters, book clubs, live hangouts and ad-free episodes of this podcast, go to katherinemay.substack.com. Hi, well, I'm talking to you today from the Shellness Beach on the Isle of Sheppey, which is very close to where I'm holding a retreat in May and June this year. So I wanted to come and explore a little further around the coast. It's a really beautiful beach. I hope to, this recording finds you all well. This week's episode is with the brilliant Kerry Nudokati, who I've had on my podcast before. But when I decided that this season... I'm stopping to pick up a bright yellow shell. I can't resist that one. When I, <laughs> when I decided that this season was going to be about how we can re-enchant this world... I knew that I had to ask Carrie back because her new book, Cacophony of Bone, truly expresses her deep mystical engagement with the world. And in a way that I think is unique because of the loose way that she's able to hold that mysticism. It's never over-explained. It's never put into a 
grander context than is offered. And I think it's fair to say that not everyone will see the world in that way or believe that it's even possible to have that kind of engagement. But there's an invitation here into something that's authentic and that's deeply held and that offers a kind of pointer towards a way of life, I think, that's very gentle, very attuned, very reflective and very meaningful. But what interested me was that when we got talking, we began to talk about reading. And isn't that an interesting thing? That it turns out that reading is a deep source of mystical engagement. But that reading feels like an act of connecting with something greater in a way that I don't think we always think about. Anyway, I, I think you'll really enjoy the episode. And I think we all need to work out where our spiritual or mystical engagement with the world lies. Even if that is in the world of facts, in the world of science, I think that for many that sense of contact comes from there. I'm walking on the sand for a while, it's much quieter. Anyway, take some time to listen. Ah, well, I hope I brought you a little bit of calm today. And I hope you have a space near you that's just as beautiful. Take lots of care. I'll see you soon. So, Kerry, welcome to How We Live Now. I was just saying to you backstage that you're a repeat guest, our first repeat guest on my podcast. Oh, <laughs> <special>. Official <laughs> friend of the show. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, this season we're talking about how we can re-enchant this world around us. And I couldn't not invite you. It's like, it's completely your wheelhouse. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. It's an honour. It's always an honour to talk to you. Um, oh, but this topic sounds really up my laneway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I couldn't exclude you from it. And so, yeah, I wanted to, I suppose I wanted to start by asking you about your relationship with the mystical and the unknown and the other world, which always seems so entangled with with your very being to me from the outside. But I wondered how that came about. Has that always been a stable experience for you or has that developed as you've got older? No, that has been a huge part of how I have existed in the world Mm. for as long as I can remember from very, very young. Right. And I, I think it's it, a number of things. So it comes from the context. So the, the physical places in which I was allowed um, to spend time mm. and encouraged to spend time and the creatures, both human and uh, more than human, that were around me. And obviously the Irish landscape, both spiritual as well as geographical 
is is sort of very ripe ground for that. But I yeah. think as well, there are two more elements to it. I think it's quite a tripartite thing. There's the fact of, I do firmly believe that when we come into the world, I'm not a religious person, but I am very spiritual. And mm-hmm. I believe that we bring, we bring something with us. We bring a number of things with us. But one of the things that we bring with us are a set of internal glimmerings. Ooh, that's a nice phrase. So yeah, and I saw um, a lovely thing recently, how that glimmers are sort of viewed as the opposite of triggers. So they're these little Uh, moments that they're jolts, maybe from the blue, or they're more gentle than that. They're sort of, they're pink threads mm. through the sky. Um, They are geese and swans in a line when you're looking for them. They're these moments that can remind us who we are, what we've brought with us and what we're looking for. Mm. I suppose... I believe we all do bring that with us. And I also believe that some things can help us to become more attuned to those or fine tune our relationship with those glimmerings. So things like how we interact with the landscape, so swimming, meditative walking, and Mm. all of those things that we can choose to do or not, listening, being with different types of people of different ages. And I think that, I suppose, as well as the kind of books that I have read from a very, very young age, they've all kind of come together and I can't separate them out, those three things. Yeah, they they just all kind of knitted together. Yeah. And the people in your life, like in your family, did they see the world in the same way that you do? Or was it something that you bought yourself? I think that very... Few people within my family would have been similar to me in that way. Mm. My grandfather was a gatherer of light, I suppose, um, but in a very different way from me. You know, I, I have spoken in my first book about my grandfather a bit, how yeah. that he would have been very drawn to thin places the same as me. But he was a very religious man, so he wouldn't really have had that view of spirituality and of kind of what we bring with us. I don't think anyone else in my family would even now have that view. Right. And I I had it as a child. I remember experiences as a very young child. And I remember knowing that they, they were gifts from somewhere, from the earth. I remember moments where... Um, like things like I've spoken about where I would encounter a very particular type of light or, you know, a line of beautiful geese or mm. um, I would find a couple of different flowers together that when I looked at them all together made my whole insides feel really nice. And I yeah. remember knowing <laughs> that, that, yeah, that these were part of me and a part of my interaction with a world that I just continually felt very humbled by and and the older I got very challenged by, but also very at one with. Um, Yeah, very connected. Yeah. It always surprises me when people find that unusual and they seem to do that and and seem to, you know, look at my encounter with the world and see it as somehow particular yeah. and develop somehow. And, it, and it's like, well, no, 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 that's just my relationship with the world around me. That's how it seems to me. It seems absolutely magnetic and it feels yeah. like yeah. there's stuff there that I can directly perceive. Like I'm not 
going on any journeys for this. This is like practical to me. <laughs> totally. But I wonder if it's part as well of um, when I was launching the American copy of Thin Places, I spoke to an incredible woman about these things, these moments that we experience. Mm. So things like chancing on a fox, for instance, or yeah. um, at, the, at a particular moment in life, or finding a hagstone at a particular moment in life. And we said, myself and this person, um, how that some of us are more open to the the magic that is within every moment than others. Mm, mm. So it's not that some of us are one off in any way by having these experiences. It's more like yeah. when yeah. you begin to really allow them to come, you really welcome them to come, then you see that they're there for everyone. It's just that it's a it's to do with where we're at in our own relationship with our own self and with this astounding world around us. Mm, yeah, which yeah. which we should feel astounded by. Totally. But I, I wonder as well about um, the permission that we're given to think in that way. Yeah. Because I, I was thinking about this a lot when I was writing Enchantment and I had a, I had a, you know, chapter that I cut because it, it didn't fit in with anything else. But I remembered how common it was in like my very working class village to be anti-religion, but pro uh, or not even pro, but to like see the thinness of the world as very natural and normal. And so it was quite ordinary for the women in my village to talk about uh, speaking to their dead mothers. Totally. And, and, you know, people would just say as a matter of fact, Oh yeah, I was talking to mum last night. She she sat on the end of the bed and and we had a little chat about whatever it was on their mind. And that was outside of my family culture. So I remember being really startled by it at first. Yeah. Like, like what is going on? You know, I I was led to believe that ghost stories were a kind of children's fantasy thing. And here yeah, are yeah. adult people totally. talking about something that's totally ordinary to them. So they're not explaining it. It's just the totally. continuous experience. That must, that's yeah, amazing. it was weird. Yeah. It was a weird shift for me of like, oh, adults are not all perceiving the same thing in, in this world. Completely. And I think, I don't know, this sounds like a really funny thing to say, but I feel like people who live in areas where weather is very extreme can have this even more than others. So right. like places that are affected by the sea in a big way on, mm. or like fog and mist and, and snow and things not looking quite as they they normally do one day or the other and there being yeah, an ebbing yeah. and flowing in the in the world around them constantly i do think that that can that can play into the permission that we give ourselves to enter into dialogue with the more than human and mm. however it looks so you know if you think about places within the british isles that have this they are a lot of celtic nations or there are a lot of sort of estuary nations or there yeah and I, I, I often wonder about that, how as we move, as we hurtle even further towards climate crisis and we're hearing that um, in Ireland, for instance, we will have much less extremity within our um, weather right. systems. There'll be a lot more rain at a lot more times. There'll be a lot oh, less. great, because you guys needed more rain, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> Ireland famously lacks rain. <laughs> yeah. this, this kind of sense of there being sort of almost a really drastic change in how we will perceive the world around us because of this change in weather. Mm. 
and the sea, how the sea will act differently. And I wonder how that will affect our our consciousness, obviously, not just yeah. because of it being a crisis, but also just because of its how it plays into our lived experience. And, mm. and how we make sense of it, how we choose like, to storytell around it in order totally. to, yeah. to find a way to kind of come to terms with it. Completely. And of course, that's always been true of societies who've lived with more risk. I mean, that's why yeah. seaside societies have, have got that, you know, incredibly rich mythology around the sea and exactly. around the superstitions of sailing and fishing. And that's why a town like Whitstable is dotted with tiny churches is because exactly. the, the fishermen needed something and their families needed something to make sense of the sheer yeah. level of risk that they were enduring every single totally. day. They had to find a way to marry up what their fears told them um, with what their lived experience was. It's a form of meaning making, isn't it? Yeah. And and comfort, I think, on a, yeah. on a very basic level, just... yeah trying to reassure yourself that all of this makes some kind of sense and that there's a there's a bigger story than just potentially losing your life at sea totally mm. it's it's a nice segue actually into talking about your new book <laughs> um cacophony of bone because it struck me that you know this is a, a pandemic book as so many of our books are at the moment what else could we have written about <laughs> Um, yeah. But at this time of existential threat and change and, and risk, you began to record your everyday mystical experience. Is, is that how you yeah. describe it? I'd, I'd love to hear about the book in your own words first, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, um, I love how you've just described it. Thank you and for giving it your care and time. It's a very hard little book to describe. In a, yes, um, it's unusual. In- it's a genuinely unusual book, isn't it, I think? It is a very unusual book and um, I suppose that the journey of writing it was unusual and I think that's kind of gone into its bones and its blood system. Um, Mm. So I began uh, writing the book just before the pandemic restrictions began and Mm. it was supposed to be a very different book in many ways. So it was due to be a book about this very odd experience of enforced solitude and isolation. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> within within a number of days, <laughs> within eight wow. days, actually, it became clear that um, it was no longer going to speak to people in the same mm, way. In the same way, yeah. Yeah, so I kind of had to really sit with that for a while and just wonder my way through how I, what, what the book was asking of me um, as a as a creaturely object. And I suppose that the pandemic, you know, it's an ongoing pandemic, but obviously the, the sort of height of the it. The lockdowns, yeah, the, the sort of intense phase, yeah. The lockdowns affected all of us in some ways in the same way, but obviously there were, we all are such individuals that we mm. all had our own story. And um, through recording, because in Ireland we were, at many points we were locked down to just within two kilometres or five kilometres of our home. And yeah, you were tightly done. Where I lived was just surrounded by bogland. So I I only saw the same two fields because even with a five kilometre lockdown, I couldn't go any further. Yeah, and um, yeah. I think there was something really, really huge happening for my relationship with myself as well as with the other than human world in that time, which was born of this change in my relationship with my own species. 
with other humans. Yeah. And I felt really, I felt like it was very important to place the lockdowns in their greater picture, which is that we had always been hurtling towards, we were already in the throes of great change across the planet, mm-hmm. housing crisis, a mental health crisis, social injustice and inequality. And if, if you start listing it, you could go on for about five hours. I think this is an intense nexus of change totally. at the moment. It and truly I feel is. like we were, it was very important for me to place that in its wider context mm. and to really examine what could happen to a very random little person at the end of a laneway who really began to allow themselves to be enchanted by the act mm. of being alive. And um, yeah. and I explore a little in the book how that this was the first time. So it's also a book about a journey towards matrescence, towards motherhood and becoming a mother, um, which for me and for many other people is very heavy and a very delicate topic. And so Mm-mm. it felt important for me to look at that from the point of view of a, of a female mammal, you know, of an animal within crisis. Yeah. Because all of us animals are within crisis at the moment. And this was the first time really that I'd properly, properly seen myself as a, as, yeah, as a female mammal. Yeah. That kind of creatureliness that comes over you when your body is doing this act of of reproduction that is so brutal and so far beyond your control, you know, and we are so used to thinking we're in control of something and and in pregnancy, like, wow, it visits you in a very hard way that you are not in control of what this body does. You've got no idea what it's doing. It's wild. (laughs) So in the book, I, as you know, it's 12 chapters. So it's January through December, the first into the lockdowns and the first bit of the lockdowns. And then each diary and each journal section is bookended by sort of short little essays that are kind of Mm. flow Mm. into the narrative of the journals. And even that in itself was very conscious. Obviously, as writers, a lot of what we choose is very conscious and thought through. (laughs) Um, It was very, very, very important to me that because I felt like you did, that our reading habits and our ability to process information of a written format had changed so fully that it felt very important for me to create a safe space within the physical object of the book for readers, many of who are still only finding their way back to the written form regularly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and that felt really important to sort of honour that change in so many of us as to how we how we feel about our concentration and about what we consume. I'd love to dig into that a little actually about the reading because I there's a part of me that wonders if that isn't a slight resetting of our relationship with the written word that is perhaps even necessary. I mean I yeah oh I don't know how to phrase this that doesn't sound terrible but I (laughs) I sometimes look at the way we talk about books online yeah and it feels like an act of consumption rather than an act of reading does that make sense totally I mean I'm in an interesting position with it because I've always been a hugely ravenous reader but this was long long before I was ever aware of 
people comparing how many books they'd read or, or, you know, or any of that. I've, I've just always, it's been very hard for me and for the caregivers around me to keep up with the amount that I needed to read. (laughs) Just Um, feeding you all these books. Yeah, totally. And my son is actually the same. So I'm wary because I am one of those people who does like, that's what I do with my time. I sow seeds and I read. And I suppose Mm. that in the pandemic, like loads of people, my relationship with reading changed so fully. And what I found was that it was the first time in my entire adult life that I gave myself permission to do a number of things when it came to my reading relationship. So I allowed myself, if I was reading a book that I didn't like, I allowed myself to stop which right. I'd never done before. Really? Oh, wow. I'm a terrible dropper of books. And I, I can say. trace <laughs> it back to my primary seven reading lesson that we had, or reading session that we had every Friday morning where my very elderly teacher was really <laughs> old school and um, she wouldn't let us stop our book. So you had to rent oh, the book. Wow. And in order to return the book to your school classroom library, you had to write a review and give it stars and things. So I know it's inbuilt. So in a way... Yeah, you've been trained very carefully to do that, in fact. But the pandemic allowed me to stop that. But also in the lockdowns, if I read a book and I loved it, really, really loved it, and I wanted to read it again straight away, I would do that. (laughs) Right. Yeah, just loop straight back around again. Yeah. And my partner does that. I, I read books a few times, but only if I'm kind of providing a blurb or if I'm reviewing them. Yeah. Um, But... I allowed myself to just do it for pleasure this time. And I allowed myself for the first time to read a number of books at the same time, to have a few ongoing, like a nature book in the bath, a memoir, you know, if I was (laughs) hard and poetry on the loo, you know, (laughs) it was good. Yeah, well, that's how I always read. Like I've always got about 15 books going and I don't, I certainly don't finish anything. I never have. And I... Brilliant. I think it's often because I'm a non-fiction reader, most of all, and therefore I'm often looking for something in there. And, yeah. I, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't know. It's, you it's don't need something. to be a thread. You don't need everything don't need to, to be in relationship yeah. with each other. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think that a lot of books, a lot of books get quite repetitive after the first third. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm okay. completely honest without, you know, I, I would never name any books that I think do that. But I think it's quite common for yeah. for nonfiction books, for their, their concept to have been stretched into book length in a way that doesn't actually feel inherent to the information that's being totally. given. And I know myself that I and I'm not naming anybody, but I have, (laughs) I've been under contract to write things where I've been made to repeat things again and again and again. And then I known that it didn't feel right. And yeah, but this idea of, you know, you have to really tell the reader is quite an old school way, isn't it? But I do think that it's still, there is a lot of it floating around still. And having to oh, really no, explain absolutely. things within a narrative as well, which I think readers are really much more intelligent than we are a lot. Yeah, give them credit me. for. <laughs> yeah. We'll return to the episode in just a moment. But How We Live Now is part of a community and I wanted to recommend another podcast that I think you'll love. If you're the type of person who's constantly searching for your own path to a satisfying and fulfilling life, check out Reconsidering, a podcast that features some amazing thinkers who've gone deep on life's most challenging questions. Co-hosts Meredith Black, Bob Baxley, and me, Aaron Walter, 
speak with New York Times bestselling authors like Dan Pink about the power of regret to help you make smarter decisions, and Oliver Berkman about the absurd brevity of life, just 4,000 weeks on average, and how to let go of what doesn't matter so you can focus on what does. If you're looking for the best place to dive into reconsidering, we humbly suggest starting with episode 8, in which we talked with Catherine May about the power of rejuvenation in the winter passages of life. We hope you'll check out Reconsidering, the show about living a satisfying life filled with meaning. You'll find Reconsidering anywhere you subscribe to finer podcasts or by visiting reconsidering.org. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think one of the points I was making as well is that I, I think often when you look at our online discourse about books now, it's so often about quotes rather than yeah. whole books, you know, and I, I've noticed that a lot in the discussion about my books that people, you'll, you'll get these things cropping up online where people say, I found this quote from Catherine May and I'm like, oh, I know. so does that mean you read the paragraph around it or did you literally just find, find a meme. quote? Yeah. online or whatever yeah, and I, the nice colors around it and the the shimmery yeah. yeah and so it becomes like a rather than discussion about reading and, and meaning and the the full richness of what we try and put into our books it literally becomes about the person's ability to identify and present like visually present a quote totally. it's performative yeah I'm a little uneasy about that oh completely and I'm also <laughs> While I'm, yeah, while I'm warming to my subject, I'm also uneasy about the number of times I see people presenting stacks of books and talking about how they fit to a colour scheme or, I mean, not that I don't like massively admire book design, but I, I think our conversation about what books are has really shifted and it's shifted away from the meaning contained in the books and and the full complexity of that. Totally. I mean, I, I've had a really um, interesting thought process around that recently myself because mm. I've noticed that it's very particular styles of books that that happens with. So it happens with yeah. your books yeah. and it happens with Robin Wall Kimmerer's books. Yes. And yeah. yeah. I've, and yeah. I've actually messaged some friends of mine when they've shared something, for instance, from Braiding Sweetgrass, maybe mm. on a doula site or on, um, say, on a yoga site or something like that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I've just wanted to know out of curiosity. <laughs> You've checked up on them. <laughs> I just want to know out of curiosity if they have read the book. It really means and... a lot to me to know if 
Yeah. Someone yeah. has, yeah, exactly. Like if they've actually, because I mean, I'm, I'm a, like, it's embarrassing. I'm such a fan girl. I've, I've read um, Braid and Sweetgrass, I think like 15 times. Oh, I mean, it's an extraordinary book and it deserves to be fully read and fully reflected on Completely. before it's passed on. Like, I, well, you know. It, totally. It's not for regurgitation. I mean, it's brilliant. No. The words can reach a wider audience. And I do love that about social media and about like beautiful little mm-hmm. memes because I've discovered some books and gone off and read them at least once through the yeah. like of that. But I do hear yeah. where you're coming from about this idea of, um, I mean, you know, and I know, like I get sent a book, like I got sent a book like three days ago and I had to have a quote in for it by this morning. Mm, yeah, and, no. you know, a blurb. And I love yeah. doing that. It's a brilliant yeah, thing to sure. do. But it's not to be rushed. And, you know, actually, I mean, I'm, I think because of the autism stuff that I write about, yeah. I have to be really, really careful about that because I'm sent a lot of books that reference autism in some way or another. Yeah. And quite often on careful reading, they do not reflect the, you, you know, the representation that I would be comfortable with. Completely. But I have to yeah. read these books incredibly carefully to see oh, totally. where, you know, exactly what they say about everything. <laughs> Completely. And I've had instances where I've been sent books and I know I haven't had time to, re- I know I won't have time to read them in advance of the blurb. And mm. I'm being, you know, sometimes being put under pressure by a publicist and sure, or and yeah. I've had a few instances where it's like oh maybe you could just take a nice snap and put it up as an Instagram story and I've actually <laughs> planned to, not without reading it I won't because yeah, <laughs> actually I've had two very tricky situations where um mm. two writers that I really deeply admire two female writers have mm. posted those snapshots when they've received a proof and I've read those books and I've had real queries and issues and anxieties around how groups of yeah. people, minority groups, have been represented in both of those books. And I've had to say to the writer immediately, have you read that? Like, if you're supporting this book and, and associating yourself with this book, yeah, have you read, read it yet? Yeah. And I know there's a real discussion around, currently, around how far can we go with using a person's biography and and their art and how, do we separate them, do we keep them together? But I do yeah. really think it's a fair enough statement to make that if you are willing to post something on your social media as a professional writer, I think what you are clearly saying is in some way I'm linked with this. I've accepted yeah, this. No, absolutely. And I'm sharing it. And I think we have to be mindful of those. I would never post an image of something that had just arrived that I hadn't read cover to cover. Yeah, so I, I agree. And I know, yeah, I know not all of us feel that way, but I do think it's important. It's so important. It's it vital. Is. And it's, I mean, yeah. I've I've been kind of slightly caught by it before when I've posted something about a book that I don't love, but I don't hate, but I, you know, I'm trying to be nice. And then I've had like five people say, oh, I bought the book because I know that when you recommend things, and you're like, oh, and I'm like, oh, no. And I I was trying to be nice to the author, but maybe that's not the right thing to do. It's really complicated. (laughs) And I am one of the authors that I have loved for so long in a recent book just took a stance that I didn't feel comfortable with about a group of people and and it was Mm -hmm. very tricky for me and I really had to sit with it for a long time and the thing was that this 
part only came in the last few pages. So the rest, right. oh, the, wow. rest okay. the rest of the book was exactly like what their work had been to me before. And I remember thinking, gosh, mm. so I really do need to read right to the very end. Yeah. And I was interviewed recently by a very big newspaper. And the person told me at the very beginning of our interview that they hadn't finished my book. And, um, and I felt like refusing the interview because actually I felt like saying, but what happens if there's something? So she don't, she's like halfway yeah. through. What happens if there's yeah. something really very, very big there that you're now mm. not going to be able to explore? Yeah. You know, yeah. of course I couldn't turn the interview down because it's a contractual thing, isn't it? To publicize. Yeah, that's right. I, well, it's, I mean, it, it's absolutely no wonder that our relationship with, reading became so disrupted I think in in those in in that context I mean you know reading is so elemental and for me it's a it's an act of connection not just with the writer but with the bigger flow of ideas and with myself completely and that space I think has been invaded actually over a period of years by the way that we've come to handle books online. I don't want to like be, you know, or it should be more highbrow. I I absolutely don't mean that at all. But I think there's a a level of care around our books that we need to start taking again. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Mm. Firmly agree. (laughs) Well, let's move on. But um, I think, yeah, I think there's a whole podcast to be made about (laughs) about book culture itself and how we read. (laughs) But actually, that that's a nice way to to lead into talking about the sort of psychological value of writing as you did. Like, were you recording this time and your observations as a way of self-soothing or a way of processing? or connecting or or was it simpler than that were you, were you just writing about it so i think probably all of those things so mm. i feel like i'm someone who really suffers deep anxiety when there's an extreme level of change i think because yeah. i've gone through so much upheaval in my personal life for for so long I respond to change that's really out of my control in a in a way that brings me back into sort of deep rooted childhood stuff. Yeah, and so yeah. I think that by having lost, I mean, stuff of course across the world was so ever changing, but I think we did have a very specific situation in Ireland with the way that it was yeah. governed. Yeah. I mean, stuff changed so um, regularly and so. And promises were made and weren't kept at government mm. level. And I think I just, um, I find that the only way that I could try and mind myself and be okay was to find a way to make sense of things that had their own order and their own cycles and their own regulation that was out with all of mm. these other changes yeah, the more cyclical changes, the, the okay. changes like the phases of the moon and the seasons and the, the introduction exactly. of new plants and birds and, and how that totally. kind of flowed its way across your year. Exactly. And I think that became even more 
important for me when I was then in a body that had changed so completely as well through pregnancy and that my pregnancy was involved an awful lot of loss of control because of Mm. the maternity restrictions being so extreme in Ireland. And I was quite a high risk pregnancy and I sort of so much was out of my control bodily, sort of socially, culturally, Mm. all of that. And I just feel like something about marking. I've always kept a a weather, more or less, sort of a weather diary as well. And I've always found it to be of great solace. And yeah, I think it was just really an extension of that. Just this walking in the same fields and in the same stretch of bogland for such a huge stretch of time. It was something I'd never done before. I'd never been in one place for such a long time and Mm -hmm. not been away working and not been away traveling and not been sort of running away from my day-to-day existence. So there was a lot of trying to honour the parts of life that I felt were still providing such solace and such nourishment. And there was a lot of also just trying to remain grounded enough to make it through. Well, it, uh, one of the things that I thought about your book was that there was this sense of the value of staying and of repeating yeah. and that kind of iterative creativity yeah. that shows you the same view every day, but but highlights how it's changed. And yes. I, I know that you've moved around a lot in your life and you're, yeah. you're still moving around probably more than I think you want to quite often because of the housing situation as, yeah. as it is at the moment. And that repetition seemed to be almost like an incantation, like yes. a, a way of casting a spell. Completely. Absolutely. All of what you said rings true. Um, I remember very early into keeping these these specific journal entries, I remember knowing that I would never go back to who I was before that time. Mm. That it was a real way marker. It was a real sort of turning point in the landscape of my existence. And it felt very, very important to have these memories written down and these experiences made ceremonial, almost made Mm. ritualistic Mm. in a way through repetition and through honouring and through making space and giving reverence to and um, that that would be important for me and looking back over that time that I would grow less aware and my memories would grow less affected by things like um, how long we were locked down and how long had gone between seeing people and how long had gone between getting right. on a plane. Those things would lose their importance for me somehow if I were able to give space in my day and in my inner life and in my my writing to yeah. the things that felt so powerful, so how many birds visited the inside of our home in that time? How many nests mm, we mm. found? How many bones we found? How many types of seeds pushed through the ground? Yeah. And that felt important. And a confluence is something that comes up in your work over and over again. And, and their meanings held quite lightly, but yeah. these instances of the world presenting you with a symbol that 
and it, you know, it seems to me you're very uncomfortable with that being open to your interpretation. You know, the, the meanings aren't given to you, but it's that act of meaning making around those completely things that arrive that are, are vital. Completely. And the thing is that it's not been that long. I talk in the book a little bit that it's not been really that long in the scale of um, human history since mm. all of us would have been in touch with those things. And since all of us would have been finding meaning in things like bones and movement of birds above trees or water movements and would have been interacting with the landscape and bringing our own ritual and our own serving of the land and of each other into the landscape around. That wasn't that long ago. And I, I, I feel really strongly, I think becoming a mother as well has really contributed to that sense in me of how we were raised, we're here and, and we have become um, who we are as a species based on the interaction of person to person, person to landscape and person to other kin, so non-human. And yeah. we're still craving that because that's in our makeup, it's in our blood and in our bones. And I feel like we are repeatedly given these chances to lean back into that lineage, to lean mm, back into mm. that becoming, because that's what it was. It was us becoming who we are. And um, you hear again and again with particular groups and say, for instance, with new mothers or women who have been unable to become mothers or women who haven't become mothers through choice. And just yeah. this sense of isolation and feeling of separation from other women because of these divides that are created within our society and it didn't used to be like that no. and we all we all feel that ache and we feel that loss and and the lack of crossover between elders and the incoming generation we're we're all craving it and when my son was mm. born I remember because he doesn't you know he doesn't really have that many family members and he has two grandparents. He doesn't see either of them that much. And I yeah. remember he would just, we'd be walking down the street or we'd be at the beach or wherever. And the second there would be an elder, you know, a, an older person, he would just be like a moth to a flame. He just wanted to be around them. And he yeah. still does. And um, yeah. because it's in him. I never realised, like my son seemed to land in the world with this really strong sense of family. Yeah. And even family members that he, yeah, didn't know that well or didn't see very often or hadn't had yeah. those opportunities to be around. Yeah. He will gravitate to them and he'll talk about them and he'll kind of yeah. re rehearse their memory. And, totally. and he keeps them close to him that way. And I, I never realised how innate that was until yeah. I, I watched him do it. I find that very moving, what you've just shared. And um, I suppose as someone who has estrangement in their biography, yeah. I'm conscious of it with bringing up the, the next part of my lineage, just how I can provide these instances for him to attach to people in a really strong and lasting way. And it's why we've moved around a lot to try and find proper community. And finally, yeah. I feel like we've landed somewhere where we could potentially have that. And already I can see the way I'm able to mother him becoming much more impactful because my sense of ease has mm. grown larger by being in a, a very community-based place. So it's... Yeah. 
important. Yeah. Well, it's it's that horrible pressure of having to make everything up from scratch on your own at one of the most vulnerable moments of your life. And and there's just no need for that for it to be like that. But that's how so many of us are raising children. Yeah. And it strikes me that when we're in intergenerational groups or or groups of people that are like just more mixed in general that aren't completely these this sort of very narrow group of chosen friends yeah. that are just like us yeah but there's something there about enchantment about the, oh, totally. the the flow of stories and mythologies and different belief systems that happens in that circumstance that doesn't happen in heterogeneous groups oh it doesn't and we make the way we form memories in our brain and the way we the way we make connections is through marrying up things that might not seem as if they're connected in any way, but that are connected for a number of different reasons. And so it makes sense that if you're surrounded by people who experience lots of different things in lots of different ways, but the connections are there through different threads, then that Mm. will strengthen the way our understanding of that specific thing works. So for instance, I'm thinking of the like of my son is very connected with very particular creatures. And one of the creatures that he's very connected with at the moment are spiders. And um, Wow. I would never feel connected with a spider, so I admire that. (laughs) (laughs) And when I say connected, I don't necessarily mean that like he is, there is a fear there as well. But I suppose that one of the things that this is maybe difficult to explain and I might not do this very well, but I'll try. Um, (laughs) When I think of spiders, when I think of my memories and the interconnectedness of things, I can see a real variety of different things and they come to the fore straight away and they involve so many different experiences with so many different people. So I can see very clearly, I can see my grandfather in one of my spider memories. I can see someone that I did teach a training course telling a story about a spider's web. I can see tinsel. I can see all these different things. And I know that that's how learning and understanding the world works. So I suppose the more we get into these little totally homogenous groups that you've said, the less potential there is for all of these different things to come through. And the more we place Mm, ourselves mm. in vulnerable positions with strangers and with people that don't hold the same views as us and with people that have got all these different backgrounds and the better that can be. Yeah. You know? And how uncomfortable we feel with mediating those relationships yeah. when they do come into conflict. Like I Great I think thing. that within your and my lifetime, a, a certain amount of conflict was quite normal. Yeah. And now actually it isn't. And we're so uncomfortable with yes. it when it happens and we just don't manage it very well. Totally. And that's a huge concern because we just need to be able to handle disagreeing and closing that the narrative arc of our disagreement so that our relationship is still continuous rather than yes. everybody walking off feeling terrible about everything and never speaking again, which is how it seems to work now. Exactly. And traumatised people are mm. much more likely to be unable to resolve things because of the fact that they they process fear and alert in a very different way from people who've been shown regularly how to resolve things and how Mm, actually mm. relationships can build through conflict that can become stronger. Yeah, that conflict is safe to some extent. Yeah. 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 
Kerry, this has just been such a wonderful conversation. <laughs> and I'm I'm so grateful is. for the well it, yes, and I you know, we have so few opportunities and I'm so grateful yeah. for the way that you just bring all of yourself to this d- conversation like yeah. within seconds. Like, here we go, we're gonna sort all of life out. And I I love that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Tell us where everybody can find you if they would love more of your wisdom. Absolutely. So um, I would love to let you know that Cacophony of Bone itself, the book, will be out um, in the UK and Ireland on the 4th of May. So you'll be able to order through. In Ireland, it's Gutter Bookshop um, and it's Waterstones and or your local indie in the United Kingdom. Then if you're waiting for an American copy, um, that's going to be a little bit of a wait, but that's through Milkweed, but you're also able to pre-order now. As for more generally, my Instagram and Twitter have links to a lot of my writing. So I'm on Substack, like most of us are now. Um, Scale is on Substack and I post there twice a week. Wonderful. Yeah, I'd love to have some dialogue with readers. And Yeah, that's yeah, right. Listen. I'm sure they'll all come to find you. And I can hear that your son's patient has run out. So I will say <laughs> thank so you so much. No, never apologise. It's no. exactly what children do and nobody should feel embarrassed about it. <laughs> He's had his timer on. He knows it's time. <laughs> He's had enough. He knows it's half past the hour. Thank you so much. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you, Catherine. And that's all for this episode of How We Live Now. My thanks to my brilliant guest, Kerini Doherty. And I really recommend her newsletter. Well, it's spelled S-C-E-E-L, but she pronounces it during the course of the interview. And I'm not going to make another attempt at that because I know in my heart that I'm about to screw it up. And I just can't bear to. Thank you also to our producer, Buddy, who also composed and performed the music, which I think we can all agree is a a crucial component of this podcast. Thanks to producer Megan Hutchins and to Sarah Horner for doing the social media. And thanks to you all for listening hope to see you very soon in a place near here don't forget to pick up a copy of enchantment if you haven't already it speaks to a lot of the themes we've been working on today and if you don't already subscribing to my newsletter katherinemay.substack.com will give you some extra information about the podcast each time an episode's released and a full transcript Hope to see you there. Bye. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here to explore how we live now. This podcast is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. Buddy Peace also composed the wonderful incidental music. And finally, if you enjoyed my podcast, please consider buying my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. See you next time.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.